Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, cockfights and dog meat, Trump's tax returns, and the politics of lockdown. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. And I must say to you all, congratulations, you made it through the end of the world. Yes, it is September 28th, 2020 right now, and if you are listening to this and you have not just burst into flame, you survived one of the many, many, many deadlines at which point the world was supposedly going to end, according to the climate alarmists. This prediction, which was very specifically calculated to September 26th, 2020, came about in a Think Progress piece that was uh, written last year, last July. We don't have 12 years to save the climate we have 14 months the deadline for protecting our children from a ruined climate is close at hand now if we take a a literal 14 months even give or take a a couple of days that brings us to this past saturday so congratulations to you all you made it i know i was so nervous uh, because like so many people i had actually just you know paid my rogers bill on friday and then i realized oh my goodness i didn't even need to because the world was going to just collapse and, and burst into flame or smoke I don't know what happens when the climate apocalypse comes, but either way, presumably we wouldn't have needed to have paid our bills or anything like that. So now I don't know what the deadline is now because they keep changing it. They keep moving it. I mean, remember that famous uh, Associated Press article that was, I think, published in 1989 that said, you know, we'd all be done by now. An Inconvenient Truth said, I think we'd all be in the sea by now. And the latest one is the 12-year one. So that's going to be coming up in about 10 years now. So, I mean, who knows? You know, come to think of it, I don't actually see why the left cares so much. Because if the world is going to end in just a few years' time, I don't know why you know, they get so up in arms about everything. Like Donald Trump, for example. Why Like, why do they get so angry about Donald Trump when America, because Earth, will cease to exist in just a few years' time? Either way, perhaps it means they're being disingenuous about one or the other, or in fact both. We will be talking about Donald Trump's infamous tax returns, as reported by the New York Times later on in the show. But first, I have to talk, speaking about climate alarmism, this a story that came out over the weekend of Catherine McKenna and her apparent penchant for cockfighting and dog eating. Now, this comes from a story in the post-millennial. Now, again, I did not have this one on my 2020 bingo card. You know, infrastructure minister and former environment minister Catherine McKenna bribing her way into a cockfighting match. But nevertheless, here we are. Never let anyone say 2020 is not uh, is uh, is not going to be the year that keeps throwing you curveballs. This is a story from Roberto Wakerell Cruz, or Wakerell Cruz, I apologize if I've gotten that wrong. And the story is based on video from an island trip in Flores in Indonesia that Catherine McKenna took in 1995. Now, she would be, I think, around 24 years old at the time, so it's important to keep that in a bit of context. The videos purportedly show her bribing her way into a cockfight. The videos are from, uh, the article writes, a documentary made by Underknown's Steve Holford, wherein young travelers explore foreign cultures, including cuisines. And let's take a, a look at a bit of the first clip here. Like this is good. You won't see the cockfighting. Ah, so oh. secret code. Yeah. Ah. 
Before we entered the fight, Bimo explained that everyone who watched had to donate 5,000 Indonesian rupiah, or three US dollars, as a bribe to the police. Apparently, the police would show up and threaten arrest if they didn't receive any money. The dirt makeshift arena was filled with strained expressions of anxiety. These men were definitely serious gamblers. You're going to choose the winning one? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. And you're going to test for it's like the strongest bird? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And look, look more muscle, you know? Caught up in the excitement, I thought I'd try my luck at gambling on Bimo's cock. When the cocks were armed and ready for battle, they were brought into the arena. Only minutes before the duel to death, people were given a last chance to bet. And then the cock fight began. As luck would have it, Bimo's cock won and I was a few dollars richer. And in tradition, the winner of the fight brought home the loser for dinner. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> the loser. The loser, the winner. Now, you only see little bits of her face there, but as you can see, they're tying razors to the roosters and then just letting them loose, and this is all a, a big old family fun activity. And by the way, one that, despite whatever you may think of certain Eastern cultures like Indonesia, has been outlawed there at the time of this video for 14 years. It was illegal in 1981. Now, obviously, culturally, people are all for it there, but it was illegal, and that was the, the whole bribery aspect of it. And the other video is her having a, a big old a bowl of dog meat and laughing about it. And this is all, uh, according to the post-millennial, getting animal rights activists up in arms. Now, I had said on Twitter when I, I posted this on the weekend, I don't actually care about the dog meat part. I, I really don't. And I, I'm going to tell you this. And by the way, the, the amount of abuse I got from people on the right for that, because they thought I was defending Catherine McKenna. No, I, I'm just saying that let's focus on the illegal cockfighting ring when that story gives us ample to discuss instead of dog eating. When, remember, whatever you may think of dogs, and I love dogs, I love animals, there is no moral difference between chowing down on beef or chowing down on Fido. There's an emotional difference because we in the West have attachments to dogs. We have them as pets. We love them. We have that man's best friend trope. But morally, if you're eating an animal, you're eating an animal. So the idea of eating dog versus cat versus horse versus pig, it's an entirely arbitrary line that we draw between them. Now, that doesn't mean people are not entitled to draw the line. I would encourage people to say, you know, ah, you know, I, I'm okay with eating a pig, but I'm not okay with eating whatever. It's like, I've eaten really weird things. I've eaten uh, goat brain. I've eaten kangaroo. I've eaten, uh, what else have I eaten? I've eaten rabbit. I have eaten, I think goat brain's the weirdest one probably some other things that, I, that I've had, and I would have other things, but the whole point is that if you're traveling abroad, you kind of have to just immerse yourselves into different cuisine, and would I eat dog? It's tough to say. I mean, if it were put in front of me 
and I was in a foreign restaurant, would I do like a whole win in Rome thing? I don't know. But I'm, I am going to say that I'm not holding that part against her because, look, she was traveling, she was having an experience, and that was part of the experience. How And you, you could even say that maybe the cockfighting ring was part of that. You know, I've traveled to Thailand. I never went to a, a cockfighting match. I, I've traveled uh, a couple of places, and this has never been on the, on the agenda. But the whole point is, is that there are people saying, well, you know, she was 24 and, you know, she, she shouldn't be held responsible for, for that. The whole point is, is that she represents a party that loves to and a movement that loves to define people by the very worst moments of their life, even going back to when they were younger than she was on this Indonesian trip. And by the way, Catherine McGenna has, a, has a absolutely no comment on this. She has not responded or, or spoken out publicly, although people have dug up some <laughs> pictures that show her affinity for dogs in a modern context that uh, compared to this video tend to look a little creepy and those have been recirculating in the last couple of days on Twitter. So if we're prepared to say left, right, far left, far right, we're all going to give everyone a mulligan and say, you know what, anything you've done before politics in your life, we don't really care about all that much. Fine. I'm all for that. Believe me. I think that this whole race to the bottom of cancel culture, of digging up this tweet, that tweet, this statement, that photo, I think it's disgusting and despicable. And I'm not going to say that this is something that should cause Catherine McKenna career ruinment. I'd be interested to hear what she's wanting to say about it. I'd be interested in hearing her say, you know, does she think it was wrong? Why did she enjoy it then seemingly, or at least partake in it? And regardless of what you think about Catherine McKenna, that seems to be a reasonable discussion. So I'm of the mind that, yes, this is a relevant story. Yes, it was good journalism. Uh, yes, it's something that she should probably speak out about now that it's out there. But no, it shouldn't be an inherently disqualifying thing, especially when I think there is ample in her actual record as a politician to say that, hey, she probably shouldn't be in public office. That has nothing to do with this stuff from when she was on an Indonesian trip in her 20s. So the whole point of this, though, is that we are now faced with a dilemma. The left has created a climate and a culture where everything is fair game. You can't have had a, a joke that landed the wrong way in your 20s. You can't have done anything at all in your life without it coming back to bite you in the rear end. So there's two ways to do this. We can either say, OK, mutually assured destruction. And that's the temptation from a lot of people on the right. Say, all right, if you're going to play this game, we're going to play it, too. The problem is it doesn't work because people on the left get a pass. Politicians on the left who have done and said the same things that have been career-ending for people on the right tend to get away from it, and you can look through a litany of media figures, political candidates, politicians that were able to get away by just saying, ah, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done X, and that's that. So that's the problem here, which is why I think the much better scenario for all of us is to say, all right, let's stop doing this. Let's stop stoking the cancel culture flames. And you can have a discussion and a dialogue about something without it actually becoming about cancellation. And that's what I would like to see happen with this thing. Look, okay, you partook in an illegal activity. You apparently enjoyed it. You haven't spoken out in the past about your disgust with it. And no, I'm not talking about the dog meat. I'm talking about the illegal cockfighting, which, I mean, for all I know, cabinet meetings are an illegal cockfighting ring. Who knows? I've never been in them. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, maybe this is why, uh, you know, the liberals always enjoy their uh, cabinet retreats because, you know, they're, uh, you know, just putting on the liberal branded razor blades on the, uh, 
on the rooster's uh, feet or whatever. But she's never really said anything about this. And and I would also wonder, and a, a friend of mine pointed this out the other day, why has this not come out previously? I mean, with all the, the stuff, it's the same as why blackface never came out in 2015 or why other things that we've learned about liberals didn't come out until earlier on. I mean, in a lot of cases, no media is doing the digging. So I have to give the post-millennial credit. They have dug into something here that the mainstream media didn't do. The mainstream media has been more interested in looking at, you know, how much uh, on clothing the Andrew Shears uh, or the, the Shear family spent for their children or, you know, the private school tuition stuff with the conservatives. Like, they're more interested in these things, and they don't have any scrutiny that they want to put into many high-ranking people on the left. And we'll talk about a great example of that right after the break with Donald Trump's tax returns here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. So yes, the bombshell report from the New York Times that Donald Trump for 10 of the last 15 years paid no personal income tax and actually in his first year in the White House had paid just $750 as well as the first year uh, of his presidency win. So in the election year, he paid $750 in income taxes as well. And this is this big bombshell that seems to be cutting into a couple of different areas. They're trying to say, oh, he's not as rich as he pretended. He said he was a billionaire, but he's not. They're also trying to say that he's a tax cheat in some way. But it's funny, if you read the New York Times article, and don't read the tweets, don't read the headlines, actually read the article itself, you'll see a couple of really weird things that make you wonder how they're trying to pass this off as news. So basically, in a nutshell here, what happened is uh, Trump, for a 10 of the past 15 years, paid no income tax. In years where he did pay it, it was minimal amounts, less than a 1000 bucks. And this is because he was writing off all of his income against significant losses. He reported losing more money than he made. So what we're seeing here is exactly how the tax system is supposed to work, that you pay on profit, you pay on net gain your taxes, you don't pay on gross gain. So the New York Times, looking at this, has found that nothing. They found nothing. Just read this line here. The And this is the great part. They even admit that this doesn't really answer all that much. They say the returns are some of the most sought after and speculated about records in recent memory in Mr. Trump's nearly four years in office and his, across his endlessly hyped decades in the public eye, journalists, prosecutors, opposition, politicians, and conspiracists have, with limited success, sought to excavate the enigmas of his finances. By their very nature, the filings will leave many questions unanswered, many questioners unfulfilled. They comprise information that Mr. Trump has disclosed to the IRS, not the findings of an independent financial examination, they report that Mr. Trump owns hundreds of millions of dollars in valuable assets, but they do not reveal his true wealth, nor do they reveal any previously unreported connections to Russia. So right there, they're basically saying that eh, we don't know if this is really saying anything because income and wealth are very different things. Liquid versus illiquid assets are very different things. And also real estate is very much a debt-driven endeavor. So if most of your money or a lot of your money or a lot of your wealth is coming from real estate, then what happens? Well, we see time and time again people who are putting debt 
in front so that they can do exactly what Trump is doing, which is minimize their income tax burden. This is how business is. Now, no one is saying that I've seen anyway that he broke the law. People are saying it might seem a little bit dirty or not fair, but no one is saying it's illegal. And if it is not illegal, for all the people who are angry about this, I have a pretty simple question. Would you pay a dollar more in income tax than you legally had to? Answer me honestly. Would you pay a penny more in income tax than you legally had to? Because I sure as heck wouldn't. Now, I'm not rolling in Trump levels of money here. I'm not rolling in uh, Trump levels of property holdings. But I would assure you, if there is a way I can bring legally any dollar of tax that I owe to the government down, I will do it. And that is a smart thing to do. It's a responsible thing to do. Taxes are not charity. They are theft. So I'm not going to willingly or eagerly or at all hand over more money than is required of me. And I'm saying this repeatedly because this is such a simple and obvious point that so many of the people who are angry are missing out on. And also, what people are neglecting to mention is that when you have the volume of businesses that the Trump Organization and Donald Trump personally have, your personal income tax is not the whole measure of tax that you are paying. And there was a, a tacit endorsement of this in the New York Times article I wanted to share. In a lawyer letter to the New York Times, Alan Garten, who represents the Trump Organization, said, most, if not all, of the facts appear to be inaccurate. And he said, over the past decade, President Trump has paid tens of millions of dollars in personal taxes to the federal government, including paying millions in personal taxes since announcing his candidacy in 2015. And what the Times says is that the term personal taxes is conflating income taxes with other federal taxes Mr. Trump has paid, which they list as Social Security, Medicare, and taxes for his household employees. So when what's happening here is that the New York Times puts out the story that says, oh, Trump's paying no tax. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, you know, she paid more tax working as a bartender in Brooklyn than Trump paid as a CEO and, uh, you know, real estate mogul. Whereas there seems to be, and they, they funnily enough, don't give you the numbers here, acknowledge that he's paid millions into the social safety net of Social Security, of Medicare, and not to mention the, the people, the payroll taxes he's paying for his employees personally and the employees of his organization. Now, I'm not even a, a Trump sycophant here. I'm just wanting this to be an area where people can come by it honestly and have an honest discussion and not be con so consumed by their hatred on one side or their adulation on the other side and have an honest dialogue, which is completely absent from this. This is a, a story that's written in bad faith, a story that's now been distorted and promoted in bad faith, and a story that we're never going to hear the end of between now and November. And the Times has already said they're going to have more on this. But if they had anything big, it would be out now. So this is coming on the eve of the presidential debate, the first one, which is coming up on Tuesday. And I mean, Joe Biden, who barely knows what state he's in most of the time, now has just one thing to remember. Joe, $750. Joe, $750. So that's it. I mean, he's going to bring it up. There's going to be a few moments where he has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know where he is, but something's going to jolt him. And he's going to shout out, ah, $750. That's going to be what we see in the debate. I might even have to keep a counter on and we'll uh, we'll do a recap of how right I was or how right I was on Thursday's show. But this is the reality is that we have in Ontario 
For example, and I don't know if other provinces have this, but in Ontario, there's something called the Ontario Opportunities Fund. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Well, the Ontario Opportunities Fund is a thing that you have as an Ontario taxpayer allowing you the opportunity to donate your tax refund, if you're getting a tax refund, to the provincial government to help it pay down its debt. So if I have at the end of the year when I'm doing my taxes, it tells me, oh, you uh, are owed $170 by the government or whatever. I always owe them. But in any case, uh, they can say, well, if you'd like, you can donate that to pay down the provincial debt, to which I say a resounding hell frigging no. If I have a refund of $2, I am going to have the government issue me a $2 check rather than donate any of that to the government coffers. And apparently, I, I looked into this uh, actually just before doing the show. Somehow, the government has managed to find $3 million through this, which in a, you know, a 300 and some odd billion dollar debt is pretty insignificant. But over the course of the last 20 years, $3 million people have given. And uh, surprisingly, thousands of people have availed themselves as this. But with the exception of these people, how many of those who are angry at Trump are saying, you know what, I, I think that it's my civic duty to pay taxes and to give a little bit extra. So I don't claim exemptions. So here are the two options. If this is illegal, yes, get angry, call for prosecution. If this is legal, your issue is not with the player, your issue is with the game. And I've been a longtime believer in tax reform. And, and oddly enough, it's the left who doesn't like tax reform and certain pockets of the right because they far prefer to have all of these different complexities and systems and graduated levels and progressive taxation and all of that. Whereas I like what Ted Cruz pushed for a few years back when he was running for president, which is the one page tax return. Make it simple, have a, a flat or flattish tax, get rid of all the loopholes, exemptions, and that's that. I would love to see that. The left is never going to go for a flat tax. We've seen it proposed in Canada, not by any major players. Rick Peterson, though, who ran for conservative leadership the last couple of times, he wanted to put a flat tax forward, or it was a, a flat-ish tax anyway. And I thought it was a great idea. I would love to see that. I would love to see wholesale tax reform that levels the playing field, that simplifies things. But Let's not pretend that anyone would willingly hand over more money to the government unless they are an absolute fool or an ideologue who at least deserves a commendation for being ideologically consistent in the sense that they actually practice what they preach. But right now, everyone just wants your money to belong to the state. That's the reality here. So you don't need to love Trump or even like Trump to just realize the inherent absurdity of the argument that's being put forward here that we should be paying more than our fair share. So here's the interesting thing, though, is that if you take that out of the equation and make it just about he's pretending to be richer than he is or whatever, I mean, look, he was a TV personality. <laughs> I guess that's the reality, is that he's rewritten the rules of the game, the game of politics. There's no denying that. But he was a television personality. The whole idea of The Apprentice was based on a character more than it was based on a real thing. And that's not to say that he hasn't done real stuff, but it was like... The idea behind this, I think, is quite amusing in that now you've got people that are so like offended by the idea. They, they hate that he's a billionaire 
And then now they're like, oh, no, no, but he's not actually a billionaire. He's 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 not. It's like, well, which is it? Do you hate him because he's rich and has all this money and is so disconnected from regular folks? Or do you hate him because, well, he said he was a billionaire, but he's not actually. And when you look at the value of all the real estate holdings, again, people need to understand wealth and income, very different things. Wealth and income are very different things. I'm not even an economist, and I know this. I don't think it's that difficult. Just look on Wikipedia or look on Investopedia. Spend five minutes there, and you'll see why this story was absolutely nothing. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So the new projections from the Ontario government are that the second wave is going to be peaking in October. And this is, of course, uh, timing well with the government telling us that further lockdown measures are potentially coming down the pipeline. We had over the weekend a restriction in place on when bars can serve alcohol and some other businesses. And it seems like we're right back to not necessarily square one, but where we were months ago, which we know was really much uh, really the death knell for a lot of businesses and very few people in the provincial legislature have been speaking out against this uh, one of the only ones and certainly the loudest has been randy hillier a, a former pc mpp now an independent member of the provincial parliament who joins me on the line now randy good to talk to you thanks very much for coming on today great to be with you andrew I think the one thing we learned early on in this is that all of the projections that we were told were really the basis of government actions were wrong. And I I think we can be very grateful they are because these were predicting thousands of deaths, ICU capacity overwhelmed. It hasn't happened. So when you hear that now these same projections are looking at an October 2nd wave, what's your reaction? Well, since March, um, you know, we, we certainly had all these dire predictions, uh, these catastrophic models, uh, and thankfully they didn't come to um, come to bear. Um, and it's not uncommon for predictions and models to be found to be an error. Like that's normal. Uh, it, actually, it's very seldom a prediction or a model is factual at the end of the day. Uh, and the same thing has happened with COVID. Um, so, But what we've got ourselves into now is a not so much of a healthcare problem or a medical uh, problem. And we've got, uh, and all Western governments find this, they've got themselves a political problem, a huge political problem, and they're not knowing how to deal with it and without admitting some errors. And um, so now we're, we're finding ourselves being told we're in a second wave. But when you look at the evidence that is revealed, the hospitalization rates are flat. Um, the uh, deaths are flat, uh, hardly measurable. Um, and, but an increasing number of people who are testing positive for some form of coronavirus in their system. Um, and those rates are going up significantly. But the severity and the lethality of uh, of the virus has, is flatlined. But we're still we're still acting politically on the models and the projections that have been dispelled and known to be false. 
What drives that? Because politicians don't want to be the ones responsible for shutting down their constituents' businesses and, and for wreaking economic havoc on their citizens. So how is there a political advantage to what's being proposed? Well, I don't know if your statement is true, Andrew. Um, the, the greatest singular uh, priority and importance for a political party and elected people is re-election and whatever it takes to be re-elected. And part of what it takes to be re-elected re -elected, is to have public opinion on your side. Um, and we know that there's a great, great number of people who are living in fear. And I would say even a great number of people who are terrorized over the seven months of of headlines and consistent and constant reminders of uh, of the potential severity of COVID, that um, that there has become a very disturbed element in our society of uh, that we have to act only on our fears and act on those uh, projections. Um, so I, I don't think Doug Ford or anybody in the PC caucus wants to wreak havoc on our economy. I don't think any of them want to deny access to healthcare like we've been doing to uh, people who need the medical attention. Um, I don't think they want to prevent our kids from going to school, but they, but more importantly, is they don't want to have their brand and their reputation tarnished or diminished by admitting that they made mistakes and errors and uh, and they don't know how to diminish or alleviate um, the the level of fear in society or to communicate what is the appropriate level of risk what is the the risk to people and as we know uh, if you're under 80 if you don't have underlying illnesses or in chronic uh, illnesses, this, um, the likelihood of you experiencing a, of contacting and experiencing severe illness or death is negligible. And they just don't know how to, how to get themselves out of the political problem that they've created. You are right about that, that in a lot of ways they've boxed themselves into a corner by how dire their predictions and projections were in March and, and April. And, and we're seeing them have to commit to the bit, so to speak, now, whereas instead of just celebrating, hey, you know what? We had to take this extreme action because we didn't know. Now we do know that's a win for everyone. Let's try to get back to normal. But that's not what's happening. And that's not what, you know, they, this is the nature and the characteristics. These are the, the attributes of political parties and governments throughout the Western world. Um, so we see them all behaving in a very similar fashion um, because no government, no government ever wants to admit an error unless it was for some other government's uh, uh, faulty policies you know, decades and decades ago. I'll give you the example, like um, the internment of Japanese in Canada. That that recognition of the error happened uh, what, 50 years later. Mm -hmm. The recognition of a wrongdoing with the residential schools happened many, many decades after. Governments um, 
you know, they know that if they admit errors and and um, and failings, that tarnishes their brand. It tarnishes their narrative, and it limits their potential for re-election. And that's really um, we've got ourselves a huge political problem that some people think is a healthcare problem. You were out of the PC caucus a year and a half ago. I think it was March 2019. Had that not happened and had you still been in, do you think you would have been out now over the course of the PC government's conduct in the last few months? Without a doubt. Yeah, there, there was no way. Like, it became evident to most people, um, you know, late April, um, by, by late April, uh, certainly early part of May, um, it was clear the projections, the apocalypse, and the um, and these catastrophic um, outcomes weren't going to happen. Um, and um, and I did speak out in the house in May. I challenged and and, vote, uh, and spoke strongly against the the continuation of the state of emergency. Um, and, and there's another good example, Andrew. The state of emergency was finally ended in, um, uh, what was it, the end of July. However, the government has retained all the extreme and extraordinary measures uh, as if it was still in a state of emergency. With the- yeah, as though, as though the issue was with the term state of emergency and not all of the powers that came along with that. So we still, so we have an unelected, unaccountable COVID command table who the premier will not identify who's all involved in that. He will not reveal the agenda, the minutes, the communications. Uh, It's all hidden from our view. And they are allowed to come out with these uh, outrageous uh, edicts like what happened last Saturday, you know, uh, a week ago, Thursday, the premier said, we're going to a regional approach on new restrictions. And he announced on Thursday restrictions for Toronto, Ottawa, and Mississauga. Well, Saturday morning, he came out and said, no, we're, uh, we're going province-wide and we're re- these new restrictions are province-wide and they take effect now. Um, and I had people just calling me in tears, Andrew. You know, they had weddings planned that afternoon. They had guests in from from around the province and elsewhere. Um, and and the government just said, now what you're planning is unlawful if you have more than 25 people in your backyard. Um, and, and we've seen this, uh, and I'll say to you, Andrew, like that is the first time in my life uh, that I have seen any government in Canada yeah, uh, announce an arbitrary decision that takes effect now. Um, no, no lead time, no day or two days grace or, or anything. It's now. And, and remember, there was no debate. Mm-hmm. There was discussion. There was no vote. Like uh, That is not how a, a representative democracy functions. We, we don't have um, um, emperor-like authorities without checks and balances um, provided to a premier, but now we do. 
I want to ask you about your sort of role as in, in many cases that, you know, the one man opposition to this, because even the official opposition, the NDP and, and what's left of the liberals in the Ontario legislature, they're criticizing the government's specific decisions. But typically those criticisms are along the lines of you're not you're not doing enough, not, you know, where you're going, which is you're, you're doing too much. I know Belinda Carajalios, who was a PC MPP, and, and we had her on the show a, a few weeks back. She's been kicked out for criticizing some of the emergency powers, but are you finding any quiet support from people in the legislature? Perhaps your own former colleagues that are saying privately, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of issues with this, but aren't speaking out publicly, or are you one of the only people that's seeing the issues that you're describing right now? No, you know, this is the great falsehood that we're being, uh, that we're being led to believe is a fact when it's a falsehood. Um, I will say to you, Andrew, not just uh, colleagues in the legislature, but um, uh, the public. Um, you know, although I stated there's a great number of people who are living in fear and in terror, um, a great many people. I don't know if it's a if it's a majority, I, but it's pretty close. If it isn't, um, understand and see the. Um, um, the falsehood that's being played out, right? But due to public pressure, due to political correctness, due to the fear of public bat backlash from uh, this irrational um, uh, conventional wisdom that we've embraced, um, they're hesitant to speak out. And that goes certainly with a lot of my former colleagues, um, other members of the legislature, um, and, and the public at large, uh, you know, uh, you, you may have seen one of my videos. Uh, I've spoken with lots of physicians. Um, most or a great many of them believe our COVID policies are causing more harm than good. They're, they're causing greater injury and greater fatality than any good that they're doing. However, there is such a reluctance and such a... Uh, a hesitation to speak truthfully about COVID for fear of retribution by their public sector employer, the hospitals, or by their regulatory body, the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, and we see this permeating throughout our society. There, uh, nobody wants to say the emperor has no clothes, or in this case, the premier has no clothes. But we all, but a great number of people know that it's true. So what's the Randy Hillier plan here? Because you're not saying that this is a sham and we shouldn't do anything. You mentioned earlier that we need to protect the vulnerable and, and look out for uh, the population that really needs the help and needs the protection. What would you like to see go into effect today? Well, just what we need to come into effect today is the same thing that we need to come into effect every day. And that's our ability to be able to speak truthfully and honestly. And that's really the crux of the problem. Um, our media, uh, the mainstream media, uh, thankfully there's yourself, there's, there were a few other um, media outlets who are allowing people to speak truthfully. But most of our mainstream media uh, have jumped on this bandwagon, this scare wagon, this wagon of fear. Um, and it's um, and it's good for headlines and it's good for um, that audience. Um, but 
and I don't think they understand how complicit they are in preventing an honest, truthful discussion. But I think um, if we did, um, and when when that day when that day comes when we can speak truthfully about COVID, we should look at this like it what it actually is, a virus, um, a virus that is that, that doesn't have uh, apocalyptic uh, characteristics, um, a virus that doesn't have catastrophic outcomes. Um, it's a virus like so many other viruses. There are some differences. Um, certainly for the elderly and the chronically ill, it is uh, much more likely to cause severe harm. Um, but we should be treating this as a medical problem, not as a political problem. Um, and that's um, that's the hardest thing that I have ever found in politics, Andrew, is to get politicians to speak truthfully. Well, thankfully, you are one of the few that is without hesitation. Randy Hillier, Ontario MPP for Lanark Frontenac Kingston. Good to talk to you again, Randy. Thanks very much for coming on today. Great talking with you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Well, that does it. My thanks again to Randy Hillier and all of you for tuning in to today's show. If you want to send me a note, please do. My email address is andrew at andrewlawton.ca. We'll talk to you soon. A new show in a couple of days on Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless. and Good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.